Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, a conversation about church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling, and today my guest is my friend Jeff Goins. Uh, Jeff is an accomplished author, blogger, and coach. Jeff's specialty is really uh, helping people become better writers, but also kind of helping them find their calling and what it is they should be doing with their lives. He's out with a new book on the art of work. It's a fascinating book, a good book, a must-read. Jeff talks to me about his own journey, becoming a published author, about his faith, and really why good art and creative work takes work. Before we begin our conversation with Jeff, I want to let you know about two really cool events coming up soon. If First of all, if you're planning on being at the Southern Baptist Convention in Columbus uh, this June, I want to encourage you to stop by the ERLC booth where we'll have a few free resources to give away, have some really neat stuff. Come by, say hi to us, get some ERLC swag, and find out more about what we're doing at the ERLC. You'll also want to make plans to attend a special free event we're hosting on the Monday of the convention. That's Monday, June 15th at 9 p.m. We're hosting this event with Nine Marks Ministries on connecting church and culture. So Mark Dever of Capitol Hill Baptist Church and our very own Dr. Russell Moore, who's the president of the ERLC, will be there to take your questions. Secondly, I want to invite you to save the date this summer, August 5th, for our second annual national conference. Our theme this year is the gospel and politics. Be hosted here in Nashville. Dr. Moore has invited several other leaders to join him, such as Sam Rodriguez, Ross Douthat from the New York Times, Michael Gerson, who writes for the Washington Post and was an advisor and speechwriter for President George W. Bush. They will be discussing uh, what Christian cultural engagement looks like, especially as we head into a heated 2016 presidential election. I have a coupon code for this national conference. When you register, you'll want to put the coupon code WAYHOME, that's WAYHOME in all caps, and get a special 15% discount. You can find information about both of these events on my website, danieldarling.com, if you click on the podcast page. But for now, let's join our conversation with my friend Jeff Goins. Well, Jeff, thanks for joining me today on the Way Home Podcast. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. So um, just want to talk a little bit about your your journey, your writing journey, and then we'll talk some about your new book, The Art of Work. So you've you've been a writer for most of your life, right? Yeah, although I wouldn't have said that a few years ago. Yeah. I would have said that writing was just this, you know, thing that I did on the side. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that's absolutely true. I've been writing and, you know, I've had a a love affair with words ever since I was a little kid and my mom was reading me the dictionary in the backseat of the car on yeah. long road trips on summer vacation. Yeah, I was kind of like that too. So I'd be reading newspapers and I'd be reading magazines, you know, when I was a kid and all the other kids are doing other things and I loved books. And uh, so was there someone in your life uh, uh, when you were a kid that kind of said, you know, I think you're you're pretty good good at this? Someone that maybe encouraged you early on when you were a kid writing? Well, I don't know that I was a kid. I mean, my parents were really great about that. My mom, Mm -hmm. uh, she was always uh, really picky about spelling and, you know, proper grammar and that sort of thing. Uh, So that, you know, rubbed off on me. And her dad was a journalist and Mm -hmm. a writer and a playwright. So I think that's where she got a lot of that. I, I think the first, like, really affirming voice that I remember 
was my uh, senior uh, in, in high school, my, my high school senior English teacher, who you know basically told me uh, on a paper she wrote on the on the last like term paper of the school year. She was kind of notorious for not giving good grades. She was really tough on students, mm-hmm. and I had basically coasted through you know my entire elementary, middle school, high school you know education. Yeah. <laughs> uh, doing the minimum in English and getting straight A's in English because it was just so easy for me. Mm-hmm. And this was the first time where I ever read about not getting a good grade. But so naturally, I you know had to write this paper. It was um, it was like a you had to do an annotated bibliography and then like some sort of complex book report that I can't even even remember. So you know, naturally taking it really seriously and being. Um, um, a mature, responsible teenager. I didn't read the book, and I waited to the night before the assignment <laughs> was actually write the paper. And I stayed up. You know, probably pulled my first all nighter doing this. Turned the paper in, and then got back a few weeks later. It was just full of red marks. Mm. I mean, just red mark after red mark after red. I didn't even. I just flipped through the pages because she put the grade on the last page. I just flipped through all the red marks to find the grade, and there was this big long note before the. An actual letter grade, and uh, the note said something to the effect of, you know, you could change this, and you know, this didn't work here, and uh, you know, I can tell you don't read the book, but <laughs> you're gifted at writing, have a gift, and you should seriously become, consider becoming a journalist or wow. uh, a professional writer. And it was like a A minus or something. Wow. And you know that I mean that spoke to me. That's um, gold. Yeah, it, I mean. I, told me that I, I didn't actually, have to, you know, read books to write book reports. I didn't have to stay. Right. <laughs> They're telling me all these bad lessons. Like, no, but you know, years later, when I was um, thinking about, I was just trying to figure out what I was supposed to major in mm-hmm. college. I pulled that. Out. I remember sitting in the parking lot, stripped about what I was supposed to do with my life, like you know, college sophomore. And I pulled that paper out and read it over and over and over again. Those words. Mm-hmm. And it took you know probably a decade. Uh, after reading those words for them to really sink in and, and have their effect, but they were um, a really important investment into what would eventually become a career in writing. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so important, so valuable to have somebody uh, affirm that. I remember when I was like in junior high and I was starting to do some writing in English and stuff and starting to enjoy it and having a teacher saying essentially the same thing, you know, you're really good at this, I think. And, you know, when you're a kid at that age, you're trying to find something you're good at, especially if you're not an athlete or if you're not, you know, sort of, you know, talented in any one area. And so it, it really does take you places. So you you kind of had this in the back of your mind. You kind of like to write, but you didn't really do it full time or didn't really call yourself a writer. What do you think kept you from doing that as you're kind of pursuing a career? I mean, I think the simple answer is fear. Mm-hmm. I was afraid of rejection and failure and all of the things that I think we're you know, typically uh, afraid of. But when it really came down to it, and I started leaning into some of those fears, you know, not because I wanted to, but because people kept affirming this over and over and mm-hmm. over again, and I started to feel a sense that, gosh, I, I probably really am a writer and I need to do this. Um, there was this fear of success, mm-hmm. of responsibility, that if I actually started calling myself a writer and owning this, then there's... I think a certain level of expectation associated with that. Like if I tell you I'm a writer versus, you know, a marketing director, you know, who mm-hmm. likes to write in his free time, 
the the conversation that we have after that, after I tell you that I'm a writer, is very different from, oh, I just, you know, write on the side. Mm-hmm. And I was afraid of the expectation that would come with that, and that, therefore, the responsibility on my part to deliver on that expectation. For the longest time, I just kind of played the amateur. I just, you know, pretended like it was a hobby, uh, all along realizing that it was more than that, and I was... I was afraid to really commit to the process of, you know, making this my vocation. Yeah. And, and you worked for a while at a nonprofit, you know, as a mission agency and, and kind of did writing on the side and, you know, making that leap, there's very few people that can make the leap, right. And, and kind of sustain a family and, and sort of, and you've written quite a bit and helped a lot of others on that journey. But was there kind of a moment where you, you were saying, you know, I, I'm going to do this full time. This is going to be who I am. Yeah, uh, this idea of taking a leap, I sort of take issue with that mm-hmm. language. Um, I think of it more as uh, building a bridge, taking a series of small steps uh, over time that get you to where you want to be, you know, close the gap between where you are and where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, at no point did I feel like I was taking a leap. Uh, and, and some of this is just sort of the nature of um, my disposition, my comfort with risk. Mm-hmm. I have realized that I'm more of a risk-averse people than some people, some of my very entrepreneurial friends, some of my big passionate dreamer friends. Mm-hmm. You know, I had seen rejection. I had been rejected by girls in high school and college. I had been rejected for jobs. I knew what that felt like, and I didn't want to play it safe, but I wanted to play it smart. So as I started writing, there was no end game except that maybe eventually, like ten years down the line, I could I could do this full time. But initially, the goal was just to finally become who I was, to do this thing that I kept waiting for permission to do, and realize that you know I just needed to give myself permission. I needed to acknowledge what other people saw in me and start doing it. And then as I started to do it, and as I started to see momentum, and I got I got a publishing contract, and mm-hmm. I started a blog, and people started paying attention to what I was saying, and I started to see some of the possibilities, it opened up, you know, my mind and really kind of uh, grew my faith in what was actually possible. And I I discovered things along the way, which I think is, you know, the myth is you have to have it all figured out, Mm -hmm. you have to have a plan, and then you need to go do it. I didn't have any of those things. I learned so much about who I was and what I was supposed to do and what was even possible as I was pursuing this thing that I felt compelled to do. I think a lot of creative types like myself and, and uh, like yourself and others who are dreamers, I think maybe the misconception about this is that it, there isn't work involved, you know? So, um, right, right. you know, you just kind of are sitting in this coffee shop and you just get this inspiration and you write this uh, beautiful poetry and the rest of your life is, is history. And so, um, I, I like the fact that you you talk about there's actual hard work and hustle involved, right? In in pursuing what it is you're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's practice. Mm-hmm. You know, this idea that it's going to be easy. I think a lot of people think of a calling as something that's easy, and you know, if it's, if it's not easy for you, then it's not what you're meant to do. And and the truth is, what I discovered in my own story, and also examining the story of hundreds of people who had found meaningful work, who had discovered what they were meant to do and were doing it, there were always these seasons of painful practice, difficulty, failure, 
But in that practice, there was this sense of passion and mm-hmm. invigoration that even when it was hard, it was worth it. And yeah. I think that's that's one of the tests of what it takes to find out if a passion is just a dream or if it's truly a calling. Because this idea that you should, you know, the, that you're entitled to do what you love and make a living doing it, uh, I think is nonsense. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the factors in what it takes to do your dream. But it's it's one out of three. I think I think you need to do what you lo- you need to find what you love. Uh, you need to do it well. It needs mm. to be a skill, um, and uh, it needs to be something that uh, the world needs or the market demands. There needs to be some real uh, need for it in the world. And when you find the combination of those three, you know, the answers to those three questions: What am I good at? What do I love? And what do people need? Or what does the world need? Uh, that's when I think you find something. You know. Um, really powerful, but implicit in that is mm-hmm. it's a skill. Skills have to be practiced. Um, there may be some natural ability or some unintentional practice, like my mom reading me the dictionary as a kid, me not realizing that this might be preparing me for a life of words. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even then, you know, when I had all of these years and years of practice of reading and writing and doing all this stuff kind of as an avocation, once I got serious about writing as my vocation, um, I I went to work with a discipline that I never before had had, uh, partly because I believe that this is who I am and therefore this is who I need to become, and that's going to take some work. So I think practice is essential to becoming great at what you do, which I think you know, whatever that is, especially a creative craft, that's really what that craft demands. Uh, I think even before you can think about what people need or what do they want, how can I take this skill and deliver value to other people's lives, you have to answer that question. Like, am I willing to work hard enough to become great at this? Yeah. And I, I like what you said that, you know, this when you talk about calling, you're not talking about the sort of mantra of you can do whatever you want to do. You can do whatever you set your mind to doing. Because that's really not true, right? I mean... I can't play in the NBA. I mean, I could set my mind to doing it. I could work 10,000 hours at doing it. I'm still not going to play in the NBA. So I like kind of how you framed it. There's several factors that go into to looking and seeing what was I meant, what was I put on earth to do. Um, right. As you as you say in the book, kind of listening to your life. So uh, I'm guessing for you that means looking at what you're skilled at, right, and looking at what the market needs. But also, is there is there a value also in getting input from others who can kind of step back and say, you know, I've observed you and... Here's here's kind of your skills. Uh, is that is that valuable as well? Yeah, I mean this whole idea of confirmation. I mean there are seven stages of a calling, and one of the stages is discovery, which I put right in the middle mm-hmm. of the process. And, and I make the you know uh, caveat that look these these are not, this is not linear. These mm-hmm. are sort of overlapping stages that once they're begun, many of them last for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So you know once you start listening to your life and become more aware of what you're supposed to do. You keep doing that. You keep learning things as you go. Um, you know, I say in the book that clarity comes with action. Discovery mm-hmm. is really a, a process that takes time. Uh, but somewhere in the middle of the process, I think you kind of lock in and you realize, oh, yeah, like this is this is it. I've been doing all these things, and I wasn't quite sure mm-hmm. which passion, which dream was the one. And now I'm starting to see some fruit. I'm starting to see some momentum. Uh, it, it's starting to make more sense to me. And uh, 
a lot of times I think that's hard to see when you're in the middle of that pursuit. Like when I was writing on my blog every day and mm-hmm. or showing up to read it, I, that didn't feel any different to me in terms of the quality of writing, the skill that I was demonstrating than a few years before, you know, writing on my laptop and, you know, saving on my hard drive where nobody saw it and, you know, those articles, you know, disappearing uh, virtually. Uh, but other people were seeing something, and I remember several friends telling me, man, this is really good, and you've really grown, and you found your voice. And mm. uh, the ultimate confirmation voice for me was my friend Mark pointing out all the things that it said to me and saying, man, this is rare. Mm. happened to you is rare. This doesn't happen to most people. You need to consider the possibility that this is your calling. And it was the context of the conversation was, should I quit my job? Should I really pursue this? Or you know, is this just something that I should keep doing on the side? And, you know, going back to your question about taking the leap, that was really the moment when I decided to go for it. And what I, you know, what that's what people want to hear about. What people don't want to hear about is the nine years of practice mm. before that, seven years of hemming and hawing, and then two years of, you know, good amount of discipline where basically at the neglect of most of my other hobbies, I was writing in, you know, my early mornings, late evenings, most of my free time, mm. And and it still took a friend to say, "Hey, look what has happened." And I was like, "Oh yeah, I need to, I need to embrace this and and lean into this and really recognize the bridge that I've built because it was pretty substantial." You talk about apprenticeship, this idea of apprenticeship, which is kind of an old school idea, but being a key part of discovering our calling. And and I I really like that because I think. So often, uh, especially in today's, I think, marketplace, where it's pretty easy to have a platform pretty quickly, it seems like there's a desire for many people to kind of want to skip those seasons, like you talked about, the nine years of kind of hemming and hawing and, and kind of figuring out your, your thing and even failing maybe sometimes. It just seems like, you know, people want to shortcut that process. Um, why is that? Yeah. Well, it's it's not... Um... It's not uh, native to our culture anymore. It used to be. Uh, and in certain areas of the world, it still is. Like Germany mm-hmm. um, has a, an apprenticeship system, which they call the dual system, mm-hmm. which is for certain vocations really embedded in their, in their culture, where you go to school, you learn a trade, and then in tandem with your education, you're going to work for a big company, and you're getting paid a, a third of an, a normal salary to practice this trade. I mean, it's, it, they call it an apprenticeship. And what's crazy about that program is they have a 90% completion rate. Mm-hmm. And then once the students have finished the program, they have a 50% placement rate where half of those people that have gone through that program stay covering the apprenticing with, which is kind of crazy when you think about, you know, how many people are yeah. looking for jobs, how many graduates are not just look, are, are, are their expectations are so low that they're not looking for a position to do what they just studied doing. They're just looking for a job to get some experience to hopefully eventually, mm-hmm. you know, by the time they reach 30, get to do it. I mean, that's sort of the common story, right? Like yeah. you do a bunch of crap jobs for your twenties and then maybe yeah. you can find something in your thirties. Yeah. Um, I think, I just think it's not natural to our super independent culture either. Um, everybody wants to go to school, get a degree, and then go do what they're meant to do. And most people aren't doing that, and they're frustrated. And historically, uh, you see that the apprenticeship system was basically replaced by the university system, um, you know, and that kind of 
you know, that set a lot of good things in, in, in emotion, you know, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, some really good things came out of the university system. But one of the things that we lost was the practice of a young person going into the studio or workplace of a master mm-hmm. and spending years watching them perfectly, you know, practice their craft and then trying to imitate that and then going out and doing that and trying that on their own and then eventually replicating that process. What's interesting about apprenticeship traditionally is it lasted seven years Mm -hmm. and you started when you were a teenager. So by the time you were, you know, in your early twenties, you had accumulated enough practice that you could go out and become a journeyman which meant that you went and traveled usually and practiced the craft. And then over in that last two or three years, mm-hmm. and then at the end of that 10 year process, you would create something, uh, which was called a master work and you'd submit it to the guild, uh, or a masterpiece. And if they accepted it and they said, this is good, you got to join the guild and then you became a master and you got to train other apprentices and kind of continue the process. What's beautiful about it is it's hard, it's rigorous, it's difficult, but by mm-hmm. the end of it, you're really good, yeah. and now there's sort of this mentality of paying it forward. A lot of that is very foreign to our culture, you know? It's, it's all oh, about yeah. me and my success, and I've got to become awesome, and, and there's no messy middle part where you've learned all the stuff, but then you have to go try it out, and then you get to teach it. If we do this, we practice a bunch, and then we go tell other people how to do it, and there's that really messy middle part of, I've got to do this on my own by myself for a while, but that's only after accumulating, you know, seven years of very rigorous practice under the tutelage of a master. Yeah, it it, it seems like, um, especially with writers, right, and creatives, yeah, you really kind of need that sort of oh yeah time period to, before you really get good and you feel like you're you're doing what you were you're supposed to be doing, where it comes natural. You're still working hard, but where you're really good at it. And uh, and also, I would argue, just having the life experience to kind of give you the the wisdom to be able to write and create well. You know, I think when I was like 17, 18, 19, wanting to be a famous writer, and it's like, I, I didn't know anything. You know, it's like, I wasn't good and I didn't know anything. And so I think that it just seems so important. Um, you talk about the mystery of motivation. I thought that was interesting. Maybe you can speak about what is it that motivates us to to work and create. Yeah. So one of the, I mean, I read all these books about skill acquisition and you know, some of these experts, including a guy named Daniel Coyle, who wrote a book mm-hmm. called The Talent Code, which is basically a book about, you know, the idea of the 10,000 hour rule and what it mm-hmm. really takes to come great at something. He's got some great um, ideas in there, incredible stories about world-class athletes and musicians and some of the myths that we can believe about um, greatness and mastery. Uh, but one of the ideas that he talks about there is deep practice, this idea that it's not about the quantity of time as much as it's about the quality of the practice, how intensely you're doing it. And he's got some interesting, you know, uh, science in there as well. So I talked to him about this. I'm like, okay, great, great, great. Like, this is awesome. Like, you find something, you know, and, you know, Tiger Woods started at three years old swinging a golf club, and then he become he became mate. So by the time he was 18, he had all this practice mm-hmm. and, um, you know, all of this uh, muscle memory <clears throat> that's, um, you know, it just, it looked natural to him, but the reality is he just been practicing longer than everybody else. I said, but what motivated three-year-old Tiger to do this? Because what everybody seems to agree um, 
uh, Kay Anders Erickson, who you know wrote the paper that turned in that you know Malcolm Gladwell sort of adapted into the ten thousand dollar rule. Um, all all these people, uh, uh, you know, who have written about this this subject of skill acquisition, they all agree that no no amount of practice can be sustained without motivation. Like you have to love it. Like you have to really enjoy it. Even when you hate it, you have to love it. You have to enjoy it, even when it's really yeah. painful and hard. And it will be at times. I said, where does that come from? And he said, we don't know. Nobody knows, which, you know, felt unsatisfying to me. And so we kind of dug into that a little bit. And, um, uh, you know, I think that there, you know, there are different answers to this depending on, you know, your, your worldview. Uh, but one of the things he says is that it starts with a spark. And in other words, um, like what, like environment is part of it, but there's a mysterious part of what motivates somebody to do something like, you know, and I see this as a parent a lot, you know, I see that there are certain things. I'll see this more as we probably have more kids and I see how each kid is different in terms of personality, but see with our son Aiden, where there are things that my wife and I try to influence him in like, Hey, I love this. Therefore you should love this. And, and then, in the midst of that environment, I still see sparks of creativity, of originality, where he gravitates towards one thing over another, even though the options are equal, you know? Like, the, you know, like why does he love the movie Cars, but mm-hmm. he doesn't really care that much about Toy Story, you know, yeah. even though his exposure to each has been equal? Um, and uh, it's really interesting to see that as it becomes, you know, more and more... Uh, substantial, you know, not just in terms of Pixar preferences. Um, but, uh, you know, Daniel Coyle would say it starts with a spark, and we don't know what, that's that's the mystery, we don't know where that comes from. Some people would say, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a spiritually, you know, driven thing. Some people would say it's genetic, um, you know, and uh, I, I, I think what's fascinating to me about that, um, especially as a person of faith, is that we can't explain that right now, but there is something mysterious that motivates you to like writing over tennis, even though maybe you grew up in a tennis playing family. You know, there are certain things that I look at what I do and I go, yeah, I play guitar because my dad played guitar. And, you know, I like books because, you know, my parents like to read or something. But then there are things, even in the midst of those influences, I go, but why don't I like this? Like, why am I not very handy? Like my dad was, even though he was constantly fixing things, and, yeah. you know, like there are things that, that aren't true, even though the environment, you know, sort of could have influenced them. And then there are other things like, why do I like this, even though nobody else in my family uh, likes that? And I think that's, that's fun. I mean, it shows that every person is unique. And in that uniqueness, I think we find sense of not just what we could do with our lives, but what we ought to do. And, and I think we need to be looking for those sparks, looking for those, you know, those things that motivate us and, you know, dig deeper into those things. So those are the things that we should be practicing more and more. Yeah. I want to expand on that a little bit because, you know, being a being a Christian as you are and, and you know, sort of growing up in the church, you know, one of the messages, I don't know if it's intended or unintended, is kind of over in one corner we have the things we love doing and over here we have the things that, we're, you know, this is kind of God's purpose for us. And there's no way that those two things can be aligned, you know? <laughs> yeah, which is really, right. really bad theology. But I... I think there's a sense that people have that, you know, maybe it's because we don't have a really good doctorate of vocation, I would argue that, but a sense that if I really enjoy doing this, um, it can't be what God has for me to do. Can you right. kind of deconstruct that a little bit? I think, 
I think things are always more complex than we want them to be. Yeah. And, and certainly in, in theology, and you know, sort of these easy answers. I've heard both sides of this, right? I mean, there's sort of that traditional, you know, view that, um, you know, like what God wants me to do is going to be painful and hard, and I hate it. <laughs> he's gonna, he's yeah. gonna call me to Africa, and I, and I'm so scared, and I just know he's gonna do that. And then there's the other side of, um, God wants you to have the desires of your heart, and if you just pray for a 5,000-square-foot home, you know, he'll give that right. to you. And and you deserve that. And both of those are, there's something true in them, and there's something false in mm-hmm. them. Uh, I, I think the reality is, if we look at the Bible uh, as some, you know, sort of uh, authoritative text, which I do, I go, well, yeah, I mean, there's a precedent for people doing stuff that they did not want to do. Moses did not want to lead the Israelites out of captivity. He did not want to go face Pharaoh. He wanted to do that. A lot of people do this, you know. Isaiah does this. Jeremiah, you know, all the prophets do this. Jonah does this. Oh, I don't want to do this. Because it's bad. Because I just know this bad thing is going to happen. Jonah says this, right? I just know this bad thing is going to happen. You're going to you're going to make these promises, and then you're going to revoke, and then you're actually going to have mercy, and that bad thing happens. Because you're going to discredit my authority as a prophet. And it happens, right? So sometimes the things that we fear happening do actually happen. And then there's the other side where there's uh, we have this scary mind God's leading us into this place of abundance. There's lots of precedents for that. You know, there's I think the deeper truth is this that God will call you temporarily to a season of dying to yourself or dying to your desires, but uh, God is always ultimately a God of resurrection. For every death, there's a resurrection. So he doesn't That's call good. you to something difficult to leave you there, That's feeling, good. you know, being a martyr. He doesn't want you to be a martyr. At the same time, um, it's, not, it's not his job to make all your dreams come true. Right. Sorry. Yeah. It's his job to, you know, affect his plan. Yeah. And I think the way that your plan aligns with his plan is by, at times, surrendering lesser dreams for the greater dream. But here's, here, I think, is the rub. When you do that, what should follow is joy. Mm. So when Moses finally submits, uh, you know, he gets access to God in a way that most people don't ever get access. He gets to go up on the mountain, he gets to see God face to face, and they talk like they're friends. You know, sometimes friends fight, sometimes they disagree, <laughs> but a lot of times friends are enjoying each other's company. I think there, I think there was difficulty there, but I think it was full of life and joy. I think that is ultimately the fruit of obedience uh, is, is this deep sense of, I know, even when it's hard, I know this is right. And so if you, it, I, at times I see people being martyrs where they're, they're so in conflict with the things that they want because they know that that certainly God wouldn't want me to be happy, and mm-hmm. that's totally messed up. Uh, and then there's the other side of uh, sort of an entitlement mentality that surely God wants me to be happy all the time, and I shouldn't ever have to do anything that's difficult, but, you know. And neither of those seem like misinterpretations of a deeper truth, which is uh, at times you will have to die to certain selfish parts, uh, you know, and certain selfish dreams, but for every death there's a resurrection. I think every dream or passion that we have is in some ways a shadow of a deeper, better desire you know, that God has for our lives. Mm-hmm. That's such a good word. I guess the last question I want to ask is, you know, people in the Christian community, and, and if you're talking to leaders and pastors and church leaders, 
uh, who much of our audience is, parents even. I guess what is one good piece of advice that you would give in order to help people nurture some of some of their creative gifts and help people find their calling? Um, you know, you, we've talked a lot about how to find your calling, but if you're, you know, you're talking to influencers and how can they help people find their calling in a, in a kind of biblically responsible way that you that you've laid out? I just um, was in a small group Bible study a few weeks ago, and somebody asked in the group, uh, there was a sermon about calling, and somebody asked the group, there's about 20 people, there's a large, small group, um, who here feels like they have found their calling and are doing it? And two people out of those 20 raised their hands. Wow. And this is good, right? <laughs> like, this is not, this is not good. Shouldn't, you know, I mean, shouldn't the Christian community, the church, have a better sense of what they're meant to do than the average person? And I don't think that's true. I think a lot of people feel lost. And I think one of the reasons that they feel kind of wandering around, not sure what to do, is because of the way we've set up the conversation, which really is the whole focus of my book, The Art of Work, is the way we talk about calling is wrong. Mm -hmm. And and there's all this pressure uh, set up in it. And the main thing, the thing that I think leaders could help, you know, people unlearn is the way that you live a meaningful life, you know, whether that's creatively or, you know, whatever your vocation, you know, might be the way that you figure out what you're supposed to do with your life and do it, I think it's by having a healthy view of even, you know, what vocation means. And, you know, I spend a book sort of exploring that, but I think a really great place to start is to not give way to you know, common misconceptions that it's just one thing that you have to know exactly what it is before you can do it. And if it doesn't come with some sort of huge epiphany, then it certainly isn't a calling. Um, and in the book, I even uh, tell this very dramatic story of Samuel being called to be a prophet. And without the help of a mentor, he would have missed it. I mean, he does miss it. He misses it three times. Mm. It calls him audibly in a voice. He misinterprets it. He doesn't know what it means. So if Samuel, who's hearing the audible voice, God needs help from other people to figure out what he's actually being called to do, how much more do we, who, you know, probably more often than not, don't feel like we're hearing an audible voice from God, how much more do we need the help of a community, a group of friends, a network, something to discern that call? Mm. And um, I think, you know, I think those are good places to start. Thing to just know. Begin with listening to your life and do that in the context of community around mentors. You know, create your own accidental apprenticeship so you can learn and practice as you go and understand that discovery is a process that, th- that takes time and happens in the context of community. Well, Jeff Goins, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, I want to encourage everyone to get your book, The Art of Work, available where, wherever books are sold. We'll have all the information for that on my website. Uh, DanielDarling.com. But Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Well, I want to thank my friend Jeff Goins for that terrific conversation. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, would you let us know by emailing us wayhome at erlc.com or better yet, would you write a review on iTunes or Stitcher? And if you're interested in other conversations we've had with Christian leaders like Bob Lapine or David Platt, Matt Chandler, Molly Hemingway, Johnny Moore, Karen Swallow Pryor, and others, 
please check out the podcast page on my website, danieldarling.com, or subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher. You can also find information about the two upcoming events I mentioned earlier, our special event at the SBC with Nine Marks, and our national conference in August on the gospel and politics. That's on my website, danieldarling.com. But until then, thanks for listening to The Way Home Podcast.